If you have your Bibles, go ahead and uh, turn with me to Matthew 26. As you can see in your bulletins, we have a, uh, we're kind of jumping around a little bit in order to, uh, to trace the story of Judas and Peter. And so we'll begin our reading at Matthew 26, uh, beginning at verse 31. This is the word of the Lord. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Skip to verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas came and one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all of this has taken place so the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then all of the disciples left him and fled. Skip to verse 69. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. And after a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you two are one of them, for your accent betrays you. And then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. And then Matthew 27, 3 through 10. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it's blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel. And they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. This has been the reading of God's word. Please be seated. These are undoubtedly some of the most dramatic scenes in all of the Bible, these scenes of betrayal and of rejection of Jesus being abandoned, but I think it's also pretty safe to say these are not just the most dramatic scenes in the Bible, but some of the most dramatic scenes in human history. 
There's a reason why so many movies have been made about the life of Jesus that always include, of course, this particular part of Jesus' life. The first film version of The Life of Christ was from 1902, a French silent film entitled The Life and Passion of Our Lord Jesus Christ. How many film versions have been made of this story? I couldn't find a number, so we'll just say a lot have been made. Why? It's not just that Christianity is popular, which will guarantee some tickets being sold, which is true enough. It's that this story is so powerful and remarkable, gripping. There's nothing like it. Brutus may have assassinated Julius Caesar, but lots of people hated Julius Caesar. And here is Jesus, and it's true, the religious authorities wanted to do away with him. But how could one of his closest friends betray him in this way? How could another one of his closest friends be so sure of his courage and dependability and then fail in the catastrophic way that Peter fell? And maybe what makes this story so incredible for us is how we see ourselves all over this passage. It causes us to do some soul searching as we find our own reflections staring back at us through the mirrors of Judas and Peter. It's a story that on the one hand shows just the extent Uh, The depths of of the wickedness of the human heart, like what the capacity of the human heart can do. But on the other hand, it's a story that shows us the radical grace of Jesus. He goes to the cross, and as we just read, he goes to the cross for those he knows will fail him. Today, we we have three points. They're they're basically three guideposts, because what we want to do, I think, is, is get into the drama of Matthew. Um, This is a story that's masterfully told in in many ways, as we'll see. And so we want to take into consideration this dramatic retelling of the story of Jesus' betrayal and of Peter's failure. This is a drama that's not intended to entertain us. It's a drama intended to engage us. The level of our desires and the level of our wills, the level of our hearts and minds. So our three points that we're looking at begin with the hard words of Jesus. You will all fall away because of me. And from there, we have these divergent paths, don't we? We have the path of Judas, and we have the path of Matthew. We have the despair of Judas, which ends with him taking his own life, and then we have the broken heart of Peter that will lead him back to the mercy and grace of Jesus. And so let's enter the story, first of all, through these hard words of Jesus. Now, what we read this morning, it flanks what we read last week. We looked at Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so here, we have our initial scene, you will all fall away. That's before the prayer in Gethsemane. And then we'll pick up after as well with Judas and Peter responding to Jesus' arrest and condemnation. They arrive on the Mount of Olives, Jesus and his disciples, and Jesus proclaims this hard word. You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And Peter responds, and he says, you know, these guys might abandon you. I would never abandon you. Jesus says, before the rooster crows, and this was probably the Roman name for the first sound of the rooster, which usually happened between midnight and 3 a.m., you will deny me three times before the rooster crows. Peter says, I will never forsake you, Jesus. And Jesus says, you won't even get through the night. Peter doubles down. Even if I have to die for you, I will not deny you. And then we have this key passage at the end of verse 35. All of the disciples said the same. 
It's not just Peter who says he won't deny Jesus. All of them say that. But Jesus says, you will all fall away. He predicts 12 out of 12 disciples will fall away. It's a hard word of Jesus. You will all fall away because of me this night. Do you hear the hard word? Because of me. What makes Jesus the hard word? What makes Jesus so offensive? It's that he will suffer. He will be crucified. They will be confronted with a suffering Savior, and and we always need to be uh, confronted with just how counterintuitive that is. How a suffering Savior goes against just about everything that comes naturally to us. And so the Apostle Peter will later write in 1 Peter that Jesus may be the cornerstone, but that same cornerstone, that foundation stone, is also a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Jesus knows that what lies ahead will be too much for them, and so he's warning them, he's preparing them. Because of me, I think tells us it's more about personal safety that causes them to fall away. It's their inability to grasp what Jesus is doing. Their inability to grasp that what they need is a Messiah who will suffer. The Savior they need will be handed over to die, and this is the hard word of Christianity, and it still is the hard word of Christianity. Because the cross is offensive to our sensibilities of success. The cross is offensive to how we think through power and how we use power. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 1. Jews demand signs, Gentiles seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. And it's a stumbling block. The word of the cross is offensive to those who think they are righteous in themselves. This can be something along the lines of, I know I'm not perfect, but, and the cross says none of that. None of that. The word of the cross is offensive to those who believe themselves capable. The word of the cross proclaims, you are deserving of the judgment of God, but there is one who has stood beneath that flood of judgment for sinners. And the proper response in standing before the cross is to say, I am the worst sinner that I know simply for the reason that I know my heart. The word of the cross is offensive to those who want to wield earthly power, and we see that in our passage. Jesus is arrested, and we're told in John's gospel that Peter is the one who steps forward with the sword, and he cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. And what does Jesus say? Put the sword back in its place. I think that has a double meaning. The sword's place is the sheath, of course, but it's that we live in a fallen and broken world, which means there is a place for the sword in this world, but there is never a place for the sword in the advancement of God's kingdom. There is never the place for the sword. In defending Jesus' name, there is no place for the sword. The sword is used to advance every single kingdom this world knows except for one. I could have called 12 legions of angels and they would tend to me and they would deal with you. I could have called 12 legions of angels, troops upon troops of angels and you can imagine the disciples saying, why haven't you? God, smoke your enemies. And the gospel of the cross uncomfortably says, but it was while you were weak and it was at the right time that Christ died for the ungodly. The cross reminds us, aren't we the enemies that Jesus has reconciled to God? In verse 32, Jesus slips in a word, not just of grace, but the power of grace. 
Because he predicts all will fall away, but he says, and after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. You will all abandon me, and yet already here is this word of forgiveness. When they leave to head back up north, back home, back to Galilee, they will not be leaving a corpse in a tomb. They will find their risen Lord there ahead of them to meet them. Even amidst the tragedy of their desertion, they have this promise of fellowship. When my kids were tiny, uh, I would often carry them up the stairs, and as we were going up the stairs, I would uh, tell them, you must hang on tight. You have to squeeze me, otherwise you'll fall. And they would take their little arms, they would grab my neck, and they would squeeze me, and the whole time, my hand is where? It's under them, holding them up. They thought they were holding on tight to me. It was me holding on to them. And I think that's a picture of this scene. Peter and the disciples say, we will never let go, and Jesus says, you will, but I won't. First of all, we have the hard word of Jesus. He's the stumbling block of offense. He is the shepherd who will be struck and the sheep will be scattered. Well, what does that scattering look like? Well, we at least have two divergent paths, two examples of what that scattering looks like. The story of Judas and the story of Peter. First, we'll look at the despair of Judas. In verse 47, we read that while Jesus was still speaking, Judas came, one of the 12, that just emphasizes how intimate Judas was with Jesus. One of these 12 souls on the face of the earth who knew so intimately Jesus. He's one of them, but he comes to betray them with, with the crowd, with swords and clubs. Now don't forget last week where we, we looked at the prayer of Jesus in Gethsemane. We saw Jesus at the end of his rope, right? He is emotionally raw. He is completely spent. And we're told as he is still speaking, that's when Judas comes, which I think just paints such a vivid picture for us. Jesus is completely spent, He's at the end of himself. He's never been lower, and in comes his betrayer. Have you ever uttered the words, I just need a break? Have you ever uttered the words, I'm so sick of how when it rains it just pours? Because Jesus is at his lowest and it just gets worse. Which is just my detour of reminding us that our high priest is sympathetic. Our high priest is so sympathetic. Because Judas comes to Jesus when Jesus is done. Je Judas comes with the elders and the chief priests, and he comes and he says, greetings, rabbi, and he kisses him. The word for greetings, it's like the warmest greeting you can have. The root word is rejoice. It's like, I am just rejoicing to see you. It is so good to see you. He takes that warm greeting with this, this false expression of affection when he kisses Jesus. And Jesus replies, friend, and I think he means it. I don't think it's ironic. Friend, do what you came to do. We're told in 27.3 that Judas is there when he sees Jesus condemned. He sees Jesus, the innocent one, condemned, and he changes his mind. It's not repent. It's not the word for repent. It's the word for regret. He regrets what he's done. He brings the 30 pieces of silver, that was the price of the betrayal, he brings it to the priests in the temple, and he says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And the chief priest said, how is that my problem? That's your problem. This is a broken man who goes to the priests, and he is rejected. The temple should have been a place of refuge for the one who finds himself guilty before God. For someone broken and filled with guilt, all the priest can say is, it ain't our problem, it's yours. 
And then four quick verbs in succession basically describe Judas's end. He throws the money, he departs the temple, he went, and he hanged himself. What do we do with Judas? I came across an interesting article that mentioned how uh, over the years, popular representations of Judas have changed from where he was the worst of the worst, the center of sinners, to now someone who's very sympathetic. And often his character is rehabilitated. So just a couple of examples. In Dante's Inferno, the great medieval epic poem, Judas exists in the worst possible place in hell. He lives eternally in the chomping mouth of Lucifer. He is the most tormented soul in hell. Now closer to our time, the 1970s rock opera, Jesus Christ Superstar. Judas is the main character who narrates the story, and he thinks Jesus is just in over his head. And this celebrity status that Jesus is attaining is distracting them from their main mission of caring for the poor. So at the worst, Judas is a sympathetic, misunderstood villain. So what are we to think about Judas Iscariot? I don't think Judas repented. I don't think he believed in Jesus as his Lord or Savior. Jesus said earlier of his betrayer, it would have been better if he had never been born. Jesus said that. So I believe that Judas died in his sin. And yet isn't Judas also a mirror for us to look into, which is where that sympathy comes in? Because he does look a lot like you and me. He's a sinner overwhelmed with guilt and in need of help. He needs salvation, but instead of looking to the one who can save him, he just descends deeper into himself. One writer talks about how uh, Judas gets off of the train of the wickedness that he's perpetuating, but he never gets back on the train of Jesus to life. I think that's a helpful illustration of repentance. It's not just turning away from sin, but turning to Jesus. Judas turns away from the sin. He's overwhelmed with the guilt of his sin, but he takes that sin nowhere but into himself. Judas went to the chief priests, but he didn't go to the true high priest, Jesus. Judas went to the temple, but he did not go to the one who is the temple, the one who brings us peace with God. Judas went to a tree where he found death when he should have gone to Golgotha, where Jesus would die on another tree to bring life. Judas was broken, which should have led him to the healing mercy of Christ. Instead, he died in himself in despair. Are any of us in this room in danger of being like Judas? Judas goes from someone who doesn't believe he needs salvation to realizing that he desperately needs saving, but he has nowhere to turn except to himself. So Judas is a warning. He's a warning because for us right now, if we're here in this room, if we are living, uh, it's not too late. It's not too late to turn to Jesus and to that better tree of life. That innocent blood that stung Judas's conscience is blood that is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And the invitation is to come to Jesus, to look and to find forgiveness and life in him. But how do I know that Christ would receive even me? We turn to the story of Peter. Our last point, the broken heart of Peter. The Soviet dissident, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who chronicled so much of the evils of the USSR in the last century. Uh, his most famous quote, I think, applies to this story when 
He writes, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. The line separating good and evil passes through every human heart. The story of grace and mercy is complicated through this mirror of Peter. The story of Judas is not complicated. Sin and justice is not a complicated story. That's a story that makes sense. Peter's story is what doesn't make sense because it's a story of grace. And grace flips reality on its head. In the first scene at the Mount of Olives, Jesus predicts his abandonment, right? And Peter's off to a bad start. F. Dale Bruner helpfully categorizes Peter's failure. He says Peter was condescending, confident, and contradictory. He was condescending. Well, the rest may fall away, but I would never fall away. There's a lesson for the self-righteous, right? When we hear God's warnings as warnings for other people and not me, we're off. We're off. Secondly, he was confident. Not something we've seen throughout the story. He trusts in himself. I will never, I will never, I will even do this. And the third problem is contradiction. He contradicted the Lord Jesus. Jesus said, all of you will fall away. And Peter said, correction, most will fall away. But I won't. And Jesus, of course, gets the last word. When Jesus is betrayed and handed over, in verse 56, we're briefly reminded where everybody is. All of the disciples left him and fled. There's one traitor, the rest are deserters. But what's fascinating is that Peter doesn't flee with everybody else. In verse 58, which isn't part of our reading today, Peter follows Jesus at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest, which is basically where Jesus has his his farcical trial before the religious authorities. In verse 69, Peter's outside, sitting uh, just outside the courtyard, and a servant girl comes up to him and says, you were with Jesus, and Peter denies, I don't know what you're talking about. He then moves out to the entrance, think of like a foyer, and another servant girl approaches him and says basically the same thing. You were with Jesus of Nazareth, and this time he swears, I don't know the guy. And after a little while, the crowd comes up and says, certainly, you were definitely one of his followers. Your accent betrays you. You have that same northern twang that Jesus had. And this time he curses and he swears, I don't know the man. When the rooster crows, Peter remembers Jesus' words, and he leaves weeping bitterly. His heart is broken. Now, Matthew tells this story masterfully, because as Peter denies Jesus more and more forcefully, he physically gets further away from Jesus. So the first time that he denies Jesus, he's basically in the same area where Jesus is having his trial. His second denial, he's moved out toward the entrance. His third denial, he goes outside. Peter is excommunicating himself. Peter is putting himself in exile away from the presence of God, who is Jesus. To the first girl, he says, I don't know what you're talking about. When Peter said, I will never deny you, Jesus, maybe he was envisioning like a mob or he was envisioning like a trial before all of these important figures. Here is the lowest person in society, a girl who is a slave. And Peter fails. To the second girl, he swears an oath. I swear to God, I don't know the guy. He didn't say, I don't know Jesus. He didn't say, I don't know the teacher. He says, I swear to God, I don't know the guy. 
Then the crowd accuses him. No, you definitely were with him. Your, your accent betrays you. And Peter swears again. And in order to get the effect, it would be something like this. You were with Jesus of Nazareth. And Peter says, let me be damned to hell if I'm lying. I swear to God, I don't know the guy. Oh, Peter. That's bad. Peter. The rooster crows and his heart is broken. He's abandoned his friend. He's abandoned the one that he said, you are God's anointed. I think he still believed it in some twisted way. But he's broken. Now take a step back. What is the point of of this whole scene? Maybe of everything that we've read today, what is the point? Everybody has fallen. There is one left standing through all of this, and that's the point. Everybody else has fallen. I've chosen to compare Peter and Judas. You could also compare Peter and Jesus. And if you think of like a movie, this would be a really gripping scene because Jesus is undergoing a trial, and simultaneously at the exact same time, Peter is undergoing a trial. Peter fails, Jesus prevails. Peter is the guilty one. Jesus is the innocent one. But mercifully, he is also the innocent one for the guilty. What's the difference between Judas and Peter? Judas went to the high priests. Peter will go to Jesus. This is so dramatic because, like, we can feel Peter's sin, right? The weightiness of it, the heaviness, the shame of it. Let's just pick two random apostles, Andrew and Thaddeus. What did they do? They just ran away. Peter cursed himself to convince the world that he had nothing to do with Jesus. And that's exactly where the gospel shines. Because while Peter curses his own name, bringing the curse down on himself, Jesus is preparing to bear the curse for him on the cross. Jesus would, as I keep saying week after week through this last week of Jesus' life, Jesus will go all the way. Jesus, just as he promised Peter in the supper, would have his body broken and his blood shed. Jesus would hang cursed on the tree so that Peter would know the very God that he's denying. Maybe Peter hung around Jesus longer than the rest because he thought there might be an opportunity to save him, but instead, Peter would know by sunrise that he would need his Savior to save him. Remember, Jesus predicted Peter's fall and said, I will see you in Galilee. Jesus knew what Peter would do when he loved him to the end. Jesus loved Peter the denier, not some imaginary, cleaned-up, holy Peter. And there's some of you who wrestle with whether or not God could ever love you. And the gospel of Peter reminds us there is a God like that. Or could God ever forgive a particular sin of mine or particular sins from my past? And the gospel of Peter reminds us that is exactly the God he is and that is exactly what he does. As Brooke Parsons writes, at the cross we demonstrated how far we will go in our sin. And God demonstrated how far he will go for our salvation. This is a message that communicates Jesus loves you and saves the real you, not some imaginary cleaned up you. And that's the message of the cross. 
Uh, as we wrap up here, I, I want to go over my favorite symbol in the history and tradition of Christian art. I have two favorite symbols. I'm going to save the other one for a different sermon. So I'll give you my first favorite symbol. You can see this all over European cathedrals, stained glass windows. You just have to look for it. It is the rooster. And in fact, I think most of us in this room, even if we didn't know it, we have all seen up close before us this Christian symbolism of the rooster. Have you ever seen a rooster weather vane? Yeah, of course you have. That's my favorite symbol. Now, what does that have to do with the gospel? In the middle of the ninth century, a rooster weather vane was to be placed on every church steeple. As the 6th century church father Gregory the Great put it, and this is why they were put on every church steeple, the rooster, he said, was the most suitable emblem of Christianity. What is the greatest symbol of Christianity you can come up with? It's a rooster. I hope we can agree that he was right. The rooster is the most suitable emblem of Christianity because the rooster is this visible reminder that as we confess in the creed, One of the articles of our faith is that we believe in the forgiveness of sins. So many of us ask, will God actually receive me? Can my sins be truly forgiven? And the rooster reminds us that the answer is yes and amen in Jesus. For others, I hope the rooster wakes us up from our indifference. Because the rooster shows us there is love and mercy that's absolutely found nowhere else in the world. Turn to Jesus and receive him. Because Peter received it and believed it. And that's the proclamation that we are to grab and to cherish. Judas believed in his sin, but he didn't believe in forgiveness. Judas believed in the innocence of Jesus, but he didn't believe in his greatness. But Peter reminds us that the mercy of Christ runs deeper than even our sins. And that the innocent one is the greatest one who died for the guilty. Father, I'm so filled with gratitude for this story that's in our Bibles. I'm so filled with gratitude that we uh, aren't just confronted with stories of the victorious who succeeded. We're not just confronted with those who were super capable and, and excellent at everything they did because that would just be another overbearing law in our lives, um, commanding us, telling us what to do. But we're grateful for the story of Peter. We feel his sin because we can relate. We feel his shame because we can relate. But Lord, may we know in the, in the, and feel and share in the forgiveness that he experienced. Lord, as he would write later on, uh, we were purchased by blood that is imperishable, blood that is precious. Lord, may that reality Uh, saturate into our hearts, into our minds, into our wills. Lord, shape us more and more into the people that you are calling us to be, more like Jesus, so dependent upon his work and upon his grace. Holy Spirit, would you seal this word into our hearts, that we may know it, that we may cherish it, that we may live by it. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.